The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to TechSequences. Internet connectivity has long been weaponized by autocratic nation states such as China, Iran, North Korea, and Russia. In 2014, when Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula, it seized mobile base stations and internet service provider facilities to reroute Ukrainian internet traffic via Russian exchange points. It also laid down a new undersea cable to Crimea. In doing so, Russia created a heavily censored and filtered information ecosystem, which would isolate the citizens in the occupied territory and distort information in such a way as to serve its own purposes. Ukraine, which anticipated an escalation in Russian aggression, took note. And so as Russian tanks rolled towards Ukraine in late February of 2022, Ukraine's vice prime minister entreated Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk, to provide Starlink, a satellite internet constellation operated by SpaceX. Since then, the Ukrainian military's use of Starlink has been a vital advantage in terms of communication for its military, allowing it to fight and stay connected, even as its cellular phone and internet networks have been destroyed. Starlink uses a constellation of low Earth orbit, or LEO, satellites to provide high-speed internet services. A low Earth orbit satellite is a piece of electronic equipment that circles around the Earth at lower altitudes than geosynchronous satellites. LEO satellites orbit between 2,000 and 200 kilometers above the Earth and are commonly used for communications, military reconnaissance, disaster recovery, and increasingly even for flight internet connectivity, even though that market is currently dominated by geosatellites. However, it is the future applications of LEO satellites that is far more exciting. LEO satellites can provide high bandwidth and low latency internet access to rural, remote, or hard to reach areas. They can also be used to monitor climate change, better detect weather crises, and track physical changes to oceans and land masses. LEO satellites can also transform the Internet of Things market by expanding the applications, coverage, and services that can be used. Will we truly be able to realize the opportunities that LEO satellites present, or will economic, political, and even operational challenges limit the promise they present? Our guest today is Dan York. Dan is the Director of Internet Technology at the Internet Society. His focus is to help explain the changes happening to the Internet and how we use it. He led the organization's Low Earth Orbit Satellite Project to identify the benefits and challenges of this new way of providing internet access. Dan's expertise is in DNS security, web security, transport layer security, IPv6, and voice over IP. Dan is active within the DNS and real-time communications areas of the Internet Engineering Task Force. He is a frequent presenter at technical conferences and has authored multiple books. Welcome, Dan. Great to be here. Long-time listener, first-time participant. <laughs> so let's let's start with the basics. So what is sure. low Earth orbit, and how does it differ differ from geosynchronous orbit? And and dare I ask, how does it differ from errant weather balloons? Okay, maybe we don't need a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
you can talk about nation states thinking about how to shoot them down, but there's a different. <laughs> uh, um, so if you look at the satellite space and the way that people look at this, they talk about the geosynchronous satellites are the ones that we've had up for decades, you know, years and years. And they're all about 36,000 kilometers away from the earth. They orbit in a, they have a particular characteristic that they orbit over the same spot of the planet as it goes around. And so you can cover the earth with it's only maybe three to six of them or so, or depending on what they are, all the kind of stuff. You can get a wide range. These are the communication satellites, the TV satellites, the internet satellites. We've had them for decades, right? They've been there. Um, they're they're typically about the size of a big bus. They take years to create. They're launched there. They're enormously, enormously expensive, but, but they do it. They, they work. The challenge, the big challenge they have is that we couldn't do this recording that we're doing over a, a connection through a geo because it's so far out there. We haven't yet figured out how to really bend the speed of light. And so it takes about 600 plus milliseconds to get all the way out to, to uh, 36,000 kilometers and back. Now in the networking world, we call that latency or some people call it lag, you know, a type of thing. It's, it's the delay that happens between when you're trying to do it. You know, things like this connection that we're doing, we're recording this over a Zoom call, you know, it, if you get below about 150 milliseconds or so of, or, or sorry, if you get above about 150 milliseconds or so, it starts to degrade. And at some point you just can't, you can't do it. You know, it doesn't work. So that's the geo world. That's what's been there in the past. There's two other bands, so to speak. There's what's called the low earth orbit or Leo, which we're talking about here. And that's generally anything from about 100, 150 kilometers up to 2000. That's kind of the range. And then in the middle between 2000 and 36,000 is what's called medium earth orbit or MEO, which is basically everything in between. And there actually are a couple players in this space that are, that are providing satellites that orbit at about like 8,000 kilometers away from the earth. There's also the GPS satellites and some of the other global navigation systems are there because they're orbiting farther. They, they, uh, they, they need more satellites than three or four but they don't need thousands. They need some number to go and, and do out there, but they still have a latency issue. Some of them can get maybe around 150 to 200 milliseconds of, of latency. So you can do some of this real-time communication, but the real change, what's happened here is, uh, is LEOS, is this low earth orbit. Now we should be clear, there's a lot happening in that space. This is where the, um, the uh, International Space Station, the Chinese Space Station, they're at about 400, 500 kilometers. Uh, away from Earth, there's all the other different kinds of satellites, all the stuff we do with astronauts, everything that's all going on in in low Earth orbit. So, the big thing that's happened is you get low speed or low uh, low speed, no high speed, high speed, low latency connections, and um, these the satellites that we're looking at, like Starlink from SpaceX, the major player that we'll talk about, they're about the size of a car. They can be mass produced. They can be launched. You know, uh, Starlink has been launching about, they've launched about 150 of them in the last couple of weeks. They launch them like 50 at a time in one of their rockets that go up and do it. It's it's mind boggling how much they're able to go and do this. So you can have 40, 50 millisecond latency. That's almost as good as, you know, a connection that you'd have through your, your local internet service provider. Now, it's not as good as if you have like a fiber connection to your home or something. You might get 10 or 11 milliseconds or, or six milliseconds or something, but but it's good. You can get 
you know, you can do this kind of communication we can have. You can load web pages fast. You can play video games. You can, you know, do Roblox or Fortnite or whatever kind of immersive metaverse kind of things you want to do over this kind of speed. So that's the real difference is that you've wound up with, you know, small mass produced, easily launchable satellites. Now, and, and this is the piece I missed uh, there to say, in order to do that, to be so low, they're orbiting quickly, you need more satellites. The, the closer you get, the more you need. Starlink's constellation that they're doing is going to be about 4,000 satellites. Yeah, so I wanted to drill down on that a little bit because I, I I remember when it was a big deal, you know, 30 years ago when there was the whole Iridium network of satellites yes. and there was going to be <laughs> yep. 77 of them, oh my. And, and now we're talking about, you know, basically putting them up there at the rate of 4,000 per company. Um, and, you know, you're, it, it doesn't seem to take much more than collect your serial box tops if you want to put up a lower th- orbit satellite. Just how many of these satellites are there up there? How many do you think there will be? And 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 we'll get to space junk eventually, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so start uh Iridium, which is also in low Earth orbit. They were up around, I think it was up around 800 kilometers or so. And they had their 77 satellites, et cetera, to go and do their their cell phone. Not not many of which are still up there, right? I think they've uh, no, no, they they've still got them. Okay. They're still they're still flying up there. It's I think, just the company um, that died. <laughs> well, but it, it was reborn. It's back. Um, actually, yes, one of the things I say said that 75 of them are are active right now. They're actually still out there and pursuing, um, but but they they're not doing internet connectivity, they're doing telco sure. telephone yeah. connectivity. Because that was, you know, 90s, that was yeah, what that they was did. Thing. That was the thing. Um, okay, so so where do you begin? So right now. Starlink has launched as of February as of uh, February 4th they have launched 3582 satellites into their first orbital shells that they have out there that are up there and these are all up around 5 500 so on kilometers so they're they're building out to a total of 4400 now just to put this in perspective various different estimates say there are about 6,000 to 7,000 satellites actively in orbit right now around the Earth. And if you think about that, 3,600 are actually owned by SpaceX Starlink. <laughs> it's amazing the, the degree to yep. which this is all happening. Now, what's happening? The other ones, the another big player is OneWeb. They're a little bit farther out, about 1,200 kilometers. They're aiming for a total of 700 and so, and they've got about 540 now. Um, we've got another player, Amazon has their project Kuiper, which they're looking to launch about 7,000 um, in over the next several years that they they uh, they they are going to be going on with that. Um, there's a company in Canada called Telesat that's looking at about 2,000. And then you start to go on because, oh, by the way, that the, what I told you was just SpaceX's first, what they call shell, their first set, their constellation. They have a generation two, a gen two, which has been a quarter of it has been approved, subject to something that we'll come into about astronomy a little bit later. But uh, they have their their second, their first stage of the generation two is seventy five hundred. It's going to go to a total of thirty thousand if the whole thing gets approved. Um, and then you've got uh, there's a group in uh, China that's looking to bring up about thirteen thousand. Amazon has another phase two. Uh, the total number there's a gentleman. Um, named uh, Jonathan, who who keeps track of all these different st- statistics around that. 
Well, and there's one more wild card. There's a gentleman out of Greg Weiler, who's a, a guy in the in the satellite space who's been involved in a lot of these different efforts and and O3B, a number of different kinds of things in the past. He's filed with the ITU out of Rwanda for three. 337,323 satellites. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows yeah. whether that will actually be built. But even if you take right. that out of the picture, you're still looking at like 100,000 satellites. So, and and I know Alexa's got stuff she wants to follow up, but I just want to sort of underscore something here back to the Iridium example that, you know, you don't just throw these things up in the air and forget about them. Um, they're there. They're there. And they may be there for longer than the company that put them up and intended to use them will be around. So this is these are commitments. Sorry, and Alexa. Yeah, and this is actually a good point. The the geo satellites are designed for like a 15, 20 year lifespan. Well, on Leo, they're so far, they're so close to the Earth that they have a natural inclination to want to be pulled down to the planet. So you need fuel, you need things to keep them up there. And so they are only projected to have a basically about a five year lifespan. And then they will hit their end of life. And so basically all of these LEO providers are going to be constantly launching to replace their satellites that are up there because they only typically have about a five-year lifespan. I'm, I'm thinking of space junk just like Leslie, but I'm going to delay that until later. There's a lot of players, as you mentioned, there's obviously Starlink, there's Amazon, um, Raytheon, Teledyne, Netcracker. Um, Rocket Lab, Craig Technologist, SAIC, but all of these companies are really Western companies that seem to dominate. Um, you mentioned that in order for them to launch a satellite, they have to get uh, permission from the ITU. Um, can you talk about how that process happens and whether in doing so, does it disadvantage certain up and coming nations? This space is getting built quite rapidly, it seems. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, a lot of the companies are are Western, are American, are European. There's a good number of European entities that are also getting into this picture now. Uh, the big player is China. They they have a number of different plans that they filed. They've done different things like this. And, and then in India is starting to get into space a little bit. Uh, Japan, I mean, there's, there's different, everybody's trying to launch Leos right now, it seems, which is why this is such a crazy space and also why we have to be really paying attention to it and asking these questions. So what they have to do is the the spectrum that the that the there's there's a couple of places that this fits into. You have a receiver, an antenna, although it's called a terminal in satellite speak, but you have this device that you're connecting and and doing it. And in traditional geo satellites, we've seen the satellite dishes on the side of houses, right? That go up and point out there. The newer ones look more like a pizza box. They're a little flat. We talk a little bit about that, but. You, you, those antennas, those terminals have to communicate to the satellite. The satellite has to communicate to a ground station, which then connects it out to the rest of the internet. So those communications happen over radio spectrum. There's only so much of it. It's shared. You have to deal with all of these kind of issues. So this is where you wind up with uh, needing to file with the ITU, as I mentioned, the International Telecommunications Union, to say you would like to use these frequencies how it actually works in and this is a bit of a it, it's a super complicated but we could take a whole show talking about that but we won't but <laughs> but basically you file with your the regulator of the country that you're in so spacex and amazon file with the federal communications commission here in the united states the fcc because they're u.s corporations if you were one web would do it in the uk 
Uh, other companies might do it in wherever they're located, which is why I mentioned that one that's being filed out of Rwanda, because somebody filed with the Rwandan regulator and said, we're going to go and, and do this. So they file for the, the spectrum that they want to use. And then they also get into talking about the orbits, the, the heights that they're going to be at, the those kind of things. That all then percolates from those national regulators up to the ITU, where the ITU then has a collection of all of these, these filings of where everybody's going in there. So it's all kind of a, it, it's all kind of there. Now, interestingly, there is not, nobody right now at this point in time is actually globally regulating what satellites get put into what orbits. Interestingly, with geo satellites, there's only a certain number of locations around the earth because it's all at the equator. There's about, I guess, 1800 or so. The ITU actually does track where geo satellites are, are located. But with LEOs, it's basically you file with your regulator and you better hope somebody else didn't file for the same altitudes as somebody else's regulator. And somehow this all percolates up into conversations. And in the end, we're hoping that everybody doesn't hit each other up there. Well, there's also the issue of spectrum though, right? Because in some yeah. countries, certain spectrum is allocated for military uses. How does that get managed? Because- So in theory, if countries have gone along with the IT, the ITU has allocated certain spectrum bands for uplink and downlink to satellites. And in theory, if the countries have respected the ITU spectrum allocations, then when these new countries come along, uh, when these new, when these players, new satellite players come along and they ask, can we use a spectrum in your country? In theory, it should be available. Now, what's happened is countries have not done that. Uh, I was speaking to the Armenian IGF, and I uh, and I was on a panel there talking about Leos, and one of the people challenged, and they had the regulator. I didn't know this, but they had the regulator, the the head of it on the stage, and they challenged him, "Why can't we get this rolled out in in Armenia? Why can't we bring Starlink here? They can turn it on. Why can't we do it?" Come to find out, Armenia used, I guess Russia did not, uh, as I understand this, Russia did not exactly follow the ITU's regulations. And so they use some of the spectrum that has been allocated by the ITU for satellites for their military communication. Armenia copied the Russian you know, pattern, did all that. And so they now have some of the frequencies that Starlink would use are being, um, are, are being used for Armenian military, national security communication, stuff like this. So they've got a problem because now they they would have to they have to move or figure out how to successfully share that spectrum, you know, or or they have to move their military to some other frequency range. You know, mm -hmm. we're actually having a similar thing in the United States right now because there's a band that the satellite companies use and some of the mobile companies, the wireless companies, are trying to claim that they would like to use some of that same spectrum that's been allocated to the satellites for continuing 5G rollout. So you're getting this tension, this fight over spectrum is all over the place. Things I really did not pay attention to that much before I, I jumped in this project last year, but it's all about that shared spectrum. In her in her intro, uh, Alexa was describing the value that that um, Starlink has brought to you know the, the fight in Ukraine and, and making sure that there continues to be internet access in, in Ukraine. Um, but I mean, there are and there are many more general applications of this. I mean, if you look at landlocked countries, for instance, uh, in Africa, where it's you know it's difficult to actually run run cables 
physically run and maintain cables to bring, you know, serious, serious broadband networks across the country. These are all reasonable applications of this kind of approach to, to satellite yep. um, communications. And, and in fact, I mean, as, as you say, even in rural areas and in, in otherwise well-served countries, it can be massively useful. It's easy to deploy without having to roll a lot of infrastructure in a sparsely populated area. All 15 minutes from my house here in Vermont, right? There are people who have no internet op option, but they can get yeah. a, a Starlink dish, yeah. you know, pay the fee and now boom, they're on with the rest of us. Yeah. You know. But the question is, yeah, well, well, <clears throat> I'll pause and remind you that my my last mile is actually 13 miles over the air on a broadband LTE connection. But anyway, um, so you're a good candidate for a Starlink. Dish. <laughs> <laughs> but but what's in it? What's in it for the companies? I mean, where's the massive drive to hundreds of thousands of satellites coming from? I think it's because you look at the pandemic showed us how vital low latency, high speed connectivity was. If you're going to do online education, if you're going to do any of this kind of stuff, you, you've got to have high speed, low latency connectivity. We want the video calls. We've got all this. We've seen this kind of thing and we want it and we want it everywhere, right? So yes, it, it's the rural, it's the far North Canada. It's it's the middle of nowhere in, in Africa or it, it's remote is, is where there's- Vermont. A, yeah, <laughs> Vermont. <laughs> there's all that, but there's so many other pieces too. It's like- Right. It's um yeah, I was reading something about Vermont and also like some of the places in in other parts of the United States and other I mean everywhere. Sure. There's there's places everywhere that could use this. And you're seeing the use case of individuals. You're also seeing the use case for backhaul from community networks or from other different places where you're connecting in. There's one group that's um dropping in cell towers basically into places, putting an antenna to a Leo on the top of it, and then they're giving people cell connect connections on their cell phones you know, out with that kind of connectivity. Uh, there's a thing, I think in Japan, they're they're dropping in 1,200 of these towers all around that are connecting out this kind of way to go in and do this kind of thing. There's that, there's in-flight connectivity is a huge thing for airplanes, not only for the passengers to be able to do whatever, but also for the, the pilots, for the airplanes, for the airlines to be monitoring their systems, um, cruise ships, you know, uh, there's so many different kinds of things, you know, ar around there. I'm a, a volunteer with an organization that does disaster response, the the ITDRC, and they do stuff like here in the, in the U.S. with Hurricane Ian that hit Florida. They were able to bring their trucks in and have Starlink antennas on top of them, being able to come into their to their their trailers and then provide Wi-Fi or cellular connectivity directly from there, being able to reestablish connectivity to the people, to the communities that are there, to the first responders, to others, all of that kind of stuff. You know, it's just, there's so many applications. And I think everybody sees that. One of the questions we raised was exactly yours to a certain level was, so can these all survive? And, you know, are they all sustainable? Or will, you know, how many of them, first of all, how many of them will launch? Right. <laughs> we don't know that, but but also how many of them will survive in the long term? And we don't know. I mean, it sounds like there's a great opportunity for Internet connectivity, uh, particularly as more and more providers come on. Maybe the the prices will drop. But ultimately, how how interoperable are these providers? In other words, if I get a Starlink dish, um, a Starlink um, terminal, is that something that I can then reuse with another provider or would I now have to go and get a whole new set of equipment installed? 
So this is a really interesting thing because in the with the geo world, you had to pay a lot for your antenna, and then you had a router and and to turn, turn all this stuff like that. There's actually a um, a protocol that that is defined, a standard that defines how those dishes interoperate with the local equipment. So you could buy a an antenna that would go for Hughes Network and and their stuff, and if you decide to go and move to Viasat you could change that out and still keep your antenna, all right? But if, because if you look at the antennas that you see on large buildings or something, those are big antennas. You, you don't want to yeah. go and have to replace those. With the Leos, it's looking a lot more like it's just going to be commodity hardware that you just replace out. You know, wow. your, your $699 that you pay for your, your Starlink antenna um, probably isn't going to work with your project Kuiper or, and I know it won't work with OneWeb and others. They're all kind of pursuing their own thing, largely because the cost has come so far down that you're at the price of, okay, you know, now those prices are subsidized heavily, like perhaps as much as by half in order to get them out to consumers. So the real price might be, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars But, you know, from a consumer point of view, you're probably going to have to pay again. So what you're really describing is is an honest to goodness wild west, right? Everybody rushes totally. out to to map out the space in in the western half of this continent and lay their lay their land claims and hope that there's gold in them lar hills. And, and there's and there's benefits to who gets there first in in terms of who launches and gets and gets their satellites up right. into various different orbits because once they're there, then they can claim usage. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they can it fire their lasers. Like- <laughs> they can fire their lasers. Yes. It's not like there's so many actors, so much opportunity, but there's a lot of implementation challenges too. Getting these satellites up uh, into the right. into space, right? So you need to have a rocket. You have to have a relationship at least with with a rocket company. What are some of the other challenges that um, that we face in getting a lot more Leos out? Yeah, I mean, you hit the big one was, you know, launching, just getting them up there. Um, SpaceX obviously has, they they own a rocket company. I mean, they're, they're fully integrated, so they can go and launch. And, and like I said, over the past couple of weeks, they've launched literally 150 plus satellites have gone up from them and they're continuing on this launch pattern. You know, they just go every, every week or two, there's, you know, 50 more Starlink satellites being sent up. Um, OneWeb launched about of two thirds of its constellation. It had about, I think, 350 or so satellites up there and they were using Soyuz out of uh, Russia. Well, you know, at the Ukraine war thing, people weren't so, <laughs> you know, that didn't really work. So so they had to like, uh, what do we do? How do we go and do this? What do we do? So they wound up, they actually wound up paying SpaceX to launch some. They pay, they've had a launch with a, an Indian provider who launched uh, some satellites up there and um they, and they've got some other ones. Amazon has gone around and lined up I think 85 launches over the next um over the next while with with everybody except SpaceX, okay, mm-hmm. right? They've talked to, you know, you name it and they're launching with with that. And Amazon has uh Jeff Bezos has his Blue Origin which at some point will be launching more of these, but you know, it's 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 actually hard to do some of these launching successfully and, and bring it all back. So this is a challenge. And another challenge is what's really interesting right now is that most all of the launch companies like uh, Arrain, Arrain Space is another one out of Europe that's 
that's been around for a while. And and um uh ULA, the United Launch Alliance, which is kind of Lockheed and others in the United States, they're all at a point where they're kind of in between their their stages of rockets. So at this moment, like the only one who's really launching a lot is SpaceX. So it's kind of a interesting thing that we'll see over this next year as we start to see more of this. But first of all, they have to get them up. Then they have to be able to use them. And to do that, you already hit on the one piece. You've got to get spectrum approvals within each country. And they have to go around to every single country and say, can we get an approval to operate on these frequencies in your country? And they have to do that. They have to go and, and go around to every single country. They also have to get approval of the usage of the terminal because it's consumer equipment that you have to get approved there. And they have to get approval to use the downlinks into ground stations that are on the ground somewhere to be able to connect out to the rest of the internet. So they have to go around do all of those kind of things. And then they have to make it affordable so people can actually pay for it, you know, and, and subscribe. And they have to make sure they have enough capacity, all of those kind of things. So it's a it's a challenging thing to make all this work. Sounds like a project management nightmare. <laughs> so Indeed. what happens when we have, you know, 100,000 of these things in low Earth orbit, things the size of cars, you know, flying a few hundred miles above above the planet? How does our night sky look different? Or does anybody even notice the night sky anymore because of light pollution? But Well, they're all looking down at their phones. So yeah, right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, it becomes well, easier to wish upon a falling star. No, falling right. yeah, <laughs> exactly. satellite maybe. <laughs> well, so this is actually one of those really interesting parts. I mentioned before that Starlink was approved for a quarter of its second generation. And one of the reasons why it was pushed back on was because there was a lot of concerns about the effect on astronomy, on weather, on everything else. And they were eventually approved for 7,500, but they had to enter into an agreement with the National Science Foundation that would look at how do they dim their satellites so they're not brighter than a certain uh, seventh magnitude, um, you know, making them, uh, changing around some of the things they're doing, changing the orientations, different paints, I mean, all sorts of different kinds of stuff to do and and working with that. And also, interestingly, I learned the agreement also included the fact that they were not going to transmit from their satellites when they pass over major radio observatories. So they're going to you know, set them up to basically have holes in the transmission that when they pass over those, they're not going to transmit from the, from the uh, constellations. So you know, a whole bunch of different things have to be there. Now, they're actually not one of the ones that's majorly concerned. There's some other folks. There's an organization called AST Space Mobile, which is looking to do satellites directly to phone. And you've probably seen some people talk about, you know, having fo phone to satellite connectivity. Well, they're putting their, their initial satellites were very large with large antennas up there because they want to be able to interact with stuff. Well, those are going to show up in, in astronomy. So that's a real concern is, is how do you, and we use that for weather forecasting, for so many other different ways of, of looking at what happens in the earth. So that is a concern. And, and, you know, the vendors are all involved, the science, the astronomers are involved, the organ, you know, governments are involved, but it's a big issue. Can you talk about the end of life? What happens when they've um, outlived their useful life? So they hit when they hit their end of life, they are, as they say, deorbited, which is a funny word, but whatever. They go out, they <laughs> fall out of the sky. Now, originally, the the United States FCC has recently put a piece, a, a ruling in place that satellite companies have to make sure that their satellites will deorbit within five years of hitting their end of life. Before that, they could stay up there as long as 20 years. So you would have all this 
orbiting garbage that's just sitting up there. Now they have to go and do that. Uh, SpaceX, a number of these different companies have all pledged that, and there's they're part of some different coalitions that have said that we will deorbit ours soon. But that's part of it, you know. And the good news, I guess, with the Leos is they're orbiting close enough to the Earth that gravity naturally pulls them down. Now they're all burning up in the upper atmosphere. What that's doing to our upper atmosphere, I'm not sure that I know or anybody knows, but that's a different question. <laughs> for, for, for those of us who gave up using spray cans in the 80s in order to save the ozone right. layer, that's kind of terrifying. But we've enumerated all the good things that this can bring. You mm-hmm. Identify that there's there are massive market drivers and it's the Wild West. So what do you think it's going to look like in a decade from now? I think if this all works, we're going to wind up with ubiquitous connectivity in many different forms. And I think we'll have, I think the proving point will be, I'm looking forward to seeing in the next couple of years when we get a few more of these large constellations up in space. Because right now, the only real data point we have is Starlink from SpaceX. And it's, you know, providing great service for many people. Um, But, you know, there are some capacity issues in some spots. There's some concerns in others. I want to see others up there. I want to see what happens when we get Amazon's Project Kuiper. I want to see OneWeb. I want to see some of the other ones out there. Let's see what this, if it really delivers the ubiquitous, you know, low latency, high-speed connectivity, will it, or will it, or is this just kind of a, a dream we're all chasing right now? But I think we are going to, if if it succeeds, we're going to have this kind of, this uh, this case. Then I start to worry about, so who controls that? Because right now, it's pretty much all under the control of private corporations, you know, SpaceX, Amazon, uh, and, you know, all of these, they're all companies controlled by billionaires or others or entities like that. Now, the EU has decided to launch its own, it's looking to build its own constellation in LEO, and that would be a government run one and that type of stuff. I think it's unfortunately beyond the realm of most nonprofits or universities to go and operate their own, you know, LEO system like we had in the earlier days of the internet when so many things were operated by many different players. So we'll have to see. That'll be one of my concerns is is what what do we who owns it? Who controls it? You know, what kind of stipulations are up there? You know, and what happens to it? You know, we've seen I think there's geopolitical concerns too. You know, China's launching its own separate system. It's made noises about concerns over having US systems orbiting over China. Will somebody get really irritated and start to shoot satellites out of the sky? I don't know. You know, these are all really interesting questions that we don't have an answer for, you know? So I, I would like to hope that we're getting, that it it does really help us provide, uh, you know, connectivity, chain, you know, helping improve the, the digital or lessen the digital divide and, and provide some competition. You know, I live in an area right now in Vermont where I don't have any competition and I'm stuck with one ISP who provides me with okay service, but I would like competition. I don't have it. I'm not going to get it from another land one probably where I live. So I'd like to have space competition as well. We'll see. You know, as I mentioned earlier in in the opening, uh, it's somewhat remarkable that a nation state had to reach out to a billionaire to ask for help in its war against an aggressor. And right now, Elon Musk uh, and his SpaceX and Starlink are the primary players. 
if it continues to be dominated by the big players, as you said, uh, you're going to have, and if it, the price even goes down, so there's competition, let's say between Amazon and and Musk, um, the price is going to go down. And all of a sudden, we'll see that um, the internet access will be controlled by the very few. And that that's a concern. Um, but what are the other consequences, potential consequences? In other words, okay, this uh, in Iran, for example, against the with the protests, they are the people are begging to have Starlink uh, installed. But at the same time, does it also provide the nation state a way to do deep packet inspection? Which way is this going to go? And that one's a super interesting thing, right, Iran? Because, like I said. Starlink has to go around to every single country and get approval to operate in that country. So for Starlink, which was actually a disappointment to me personally, as an advocate for internet access, I was thinking for countries that have shutdowns, you know, maybe we could just sneak in some terminals and, you know, hook them up to the satellite networks and boom, it would all work. And actually, technically it can, you know, it it can work that way. But the the the, the uh, Leo the constellations they have to turn it on or off for a region because of these licensing issues and things like that. So you can't just bring this into a, a certain location. There's also in the Ukraine they were important to talk about this. There's a risk because you are transmitting. You're not just receiving. You're transmitting. So somebody can potentially you know hone in on where that antenna is. And potentially, you know, att- find you, attack you, do whatever else, those kind of things. But Iran's an interesting case because with the protests going on, you saw a number of people, including the U.S. government, saying, turn that thing on. Let people go and, and, and you know, access this. And they were saying it directly to uh, to Elon Musk and others. And he was saying, you know, we're going to turn it on. Iran, it's going to be turned on for. Okay. <laughs> the Iranian government did not give that permission. Hmm. All right. So, and there's been mixed questions as to how much of how many terminals are actually in Iran that people can use. But the Iranian government did not give that permission. So you've just decided, because I mean, really, there's probably very few other governments that are going to complain. But you've decided you're going to give internet access there. That's not how the ITU, how all of this all works. So it's a very interesting dilemma, and you could see that China, when they get their system up there, they could potentially turn it on in many different countries too. Who's going to control that? And this is this is really just scratching the surface of of a very large complex topic that I'm sure we're going to hear more about in in the coming years and I mean literally the sky is the limit for the things that yeah. could come from this. Um so maybe maybe you could just leave our listeners with a few thoughts of of key things that they should take away and look for in in the coming years. Sure. Well, one thing I'll say is the Internet Society did, we created a document that we call Perspectives on Low Earth Orbit Satellites. You can just get it at internetsociety.org slash LEOS, L-E-O-S. You can get it right there. And and that has a lot of these questions we've talked about. And, and the key point for me is this whole new realm of LEO, low Earth orbit internet access could potentially really help us change the digital divide, connect more people and do all of that. But right now, we have to be asking these questions. We have to be asking about space debris. We have to be asking about control. We have to be asking about affordability, about capacity. We have to be asking these rather than just accepting the marketing of the companies who are trying to go out there and promote it in some way. Um, you know, they're doing amazing work. I think it's tremendous potential. 
But we've got to ask those questions. This year, there's a, a ITU event called the World Radio Conference that'll be happening, which will have a lot of these spectrum discussions. You know, there's a lot of these different things that are, that'll be happening over this next while that uh, really we need to be paying attention. We need to be engaged. We need to be talking about this, sharing information and, uh, and helping us understand, can this really be a way to connect the internet to everyone? That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for your show. I think it's a great way to talk about these true consequences. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this TechSequences podcast. We are Leslie Vagel and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. TechSequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.